Good morning, everyone. I need to close the door to my office. I forgot to. I hope you can hear this. I'm playing a little song in the background. Let me turn it up a little. You can hear it. It's really good. I've been playing this. It's a YouTube video over and over since last week. Um, hey, Brother Brock, good to see you, my friend. I, I played this video. Um, I'm going to show it to you. Okay, it's on my uh, it's on my laptop. Let me make sure you can see it. Don't you just want to sing along? I mean, it's so pure, it's so beautiful. I'm going to tell you who this little boy is. I've just, I can't stop listening to this. Um, I discovered this when I was preparing my sermon last for last Sunday. Preaching about having a pressing on kind of faith. And... Uh, I don't know how I came on this. I was Googling things that talked about, you know, pressing on and against all odds type of things. Uh, good morning, Judy. But this this little boy's song, he, he, uh, he was 10 years old singing that, and that was actually uh, nine years ago. His name is Christopher Duffley. He was born blind, and he's autistic. Good morning, Sylvia. So little Christopher is singing that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. He's an autistic boy. Brilliant, brilliant. But what's suffering in your life to be born blind and born autistic? And the story his uncle had been introducing him, that his, his mother had been on drugs when he was born, and the family went down and rescued him out of uh, the, the uh, foster system and, and raised him and he just from a very early age loved singing and so here he is at a concert in New Hampshire singing about the holiness of our God and opening the eyes of our heart I mean, he, he can't see with his real eyes but oh how he can see with the eyes of his heart and what a prayer that is and that just filled my heart all last week and and so I just keep listening to it and and I can't stop listening to it I just I just love this little guy and, and now he's 19 years old, and he actually has a podcast that's called Mission Possible. Just bringing inspiration to people. What is your mission that you thought was impossible that you can do and make it possible? He's, he's had a couple of recording contracts to help just share the song in his heart. Uh, so I subscribed to his podcast this week, and I'm just loving listening to him. There's the end of the song, wow. Um, Christopher Duffley. So you check him out sometime. Maybe subscribe to his podcast, listen to a few things. Linda, thank you for joining us. Love you. And Pat, miss you all. I miss all of you. Um, 
Thank you for, for joining in today. We are about to uh, get our Bible study started here, and I was hoping to be able to, yeah, maybe it's here. I can grab it online. There we go. Good. It always helps me if I can grab it on my uh, on my laptop while I'm looking at you here, and I can see your comments here better. So uh, great, great, great. Well, hey, do you have a cup of coffee? Uh, or maybe a soda or tea or whatever. I have my trusty little cup this morning from Churn and Burn. If you don't know what Churn and Burn is, you need to check it out. Churn and Burn is, uh, is a little coffee shop. There's one out east, the main one. There's a little one here next to our counseling office, and it's an ice cream shop, but they do coffees also. And, uh, and they do a really good job. So this is just a, this morning, it's a little warm, very hot hot Americano, a decaf Americano, but uh, they put the little uh, sleeve on it. It says vote with a little donkey and a Republican there. Vote November 3rd. So they're doing their part to get out the vote. Mm. So smooth. So, so good. So give them a, give them a try. If you haven't tried churn and burn, they're, they're ice cream gelatos. They freeze it right there for you uh, with uh, liquid nitrogen. They got a unique process. That's a lot of fun. But I want to, uh, so just give a shout out to them. And this morning, we're in the Gospel of Luke. It's great to be back after missing last week. Uh, I had a funeral and it just was no way to do it, but I'm back and uh, loving the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. We're going to look this morning at Jesus uh, talking to the John the Baptist disciples that come to see him and... Uh, you know, I thought of this question because Jesus talks about who is the greatest. So if I, if I use those words to you this morning, if I ask you the question, if I use that phrase, I am the greatest, and that would be pretty arrogant of me to say that. Uh, I'm really not the greatest at anything, <laughs> um, except probably I'm the greatest at picking losing teams and uh, in the Super Bowl and everything else, my, my favorite teams uh, tend to lose. And I don't know why that is. I've had a few wins in there. But, uh, but, but I, that, if I just say, I'm the greatest, what do you think of? Who's famous? I want you to type in your answer. Who is famous for that phrase? I am the greatest. Tell me. Tell me who it is. Type it in. I want to see who knows. And all of those who will be watching this later, you're going to get the benefit of seeing it. Uh, the answer, but you probably know. I'm just waiting for somebody to answer here. I am the greatest. Can you pull that out of recent history of who's famous for saying that? Those of you listening, those of you who are on here live with me as we're trying to get started, come on, I know you know. I know you know. I am the greatest. Who said that? And we see Sylvia says, greatest teacher. Oh, you're very kind. I'm very definitely not the greatest teacher. Oh, wow. So kind of you. Uh, love what I do, though. Love to do this. Thank you. Um, you got it. Muhammad Ali. Sylvia wins. Muhammad Ali was famous for saying, I am the greatest. I was a big Muhammad Ali fan as a, as a kid growing up. I, I, I really think he was and is still the greatest boxer that ever lived. Hi, Beverly. Good to see you. I think Muhammad Ali is without a doubt the greatest boxer that ever lived. And I, I, I'm 
not sure anybody will ever surpass that. Maybe they will, but I mean, it's just amazing what he was able to do. My brother didn't really like him because uh, my brother said he was always bragging. He was a braggart. And I said to my brother, I said, you know, it's not bragging if you can back it up. He was just predicting what was going to happen. And, and he did. He made it happen. I mean, his comeback, his everything he did was just amazing. He, he was, a you know, of course, a Muslim converted to Islam uh, as he uh, back in the 60s. And, and, uh, but what most people don't know about Muhammad Ali was he was truly a, a for boxing. You know, you think of boxing as a violent sport. He really was a, a man of peace. Um, he did a lot of good for people that behind the scenes that nobody knew about, gave away a lot of money, helped a lot of people. Um, he, he actually, I have an autographed picture of him at home, in my office at home. And uh, I got that picture from my nephew who lives in Michigan. Uh, he, uh, he got that for me because he met Muhammad Ali, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that, I can't remember. Um, but uh, Muhammad, Ali, Muhammad Ali actually lived on a rural type setting, a farm outside of a small town in Michigan, not far from the little town where my nephew lived. And my nephew was a football coach. And uh, Sylvia said, I've forgotten his original name. It was Cassius Clay. He grew up on the streets of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, no, Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, yeah. And uh, in fact, it's an interesting story. He grew up. Uh, his, his bicycle was stolen at the age of 12. And they were very poor. And he knew he couldn't afford another bike. wasn't going to get one. And he went to report it to a policeman. And he was so frustrated. He told that policeman, I'm going to learn to fight. Nobody's going to ever steal anything of mine again. And the policeman just happened to be a boxing coach. There you have it. But he lived in Michigan. And anyway, uh, my nephew was a football coach. Uh, helped with the high school football team. And they had Muhammad Ali come to the restaurant where they had the whole team out for dinner just to talk to these team of high school kids about, about winning and losing and about pressing on and not ever giving up and just overcoming. And it was a great, great evening. He, he just did it for these, these kids in high school. Kind of a, a pretty neat guy. Um, but anyway, the, what does all that have to do with Bible study today? Luke chapter 7. Well, it has a lot to do because... Jesus is talking about who's the greatest. And we're going to get to that answer. We're going to answer that question by the end of our Bible study. But today, if you have your prayer cards, go ahead and take them out. Let's always begin with prayer. We, as, as young Christopher was singing there, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Well, that's in essence what this prayer says. To illumine our hearts. Uh, it begins with illumine our hearts. Oh, Master. I mean, that's, it's the prayer. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. So let's pray it together. Would you, would you pray this with me as we begin? Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, 
now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for praying that with me. And I need to turn the audio recorder on. Kind of missed that first part of Bible study that won't be on the podcast, sadly, because I forgot to turn this on. But now it's recording so we can get the study part. That's the important part. But hey, thanks for just spending a little time with me this morning. And, and let's talk through this scripture. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. This is part 2 of chapter 7. And let's look together at a section starting in verses 18 through 35. 18 through 35. And uh, I'll begin reading, as I always do from this revised standard version you follow along with whatever you have the disciples of john told him all these things and now let me just parenthetically stop there all what things all the things that have been happening jesus has raised the dead jesus healed the centurion's servant the disciples of john are kind of hanging around the outskirts of jesus crowd because john is in prison okay Back to the scripture. Verse 19. And John, calling to him two of his disciples, sent, to, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, quote, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he cured many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many that were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. And when the messengers of John had gone, he began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When they heard this, all the people and the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a fascinating passage of scripture. Let's begin with this thought. I'm going to hold this conversation about who is the greatest until the end. But I do want to begin by talking about why it is that John the Baptist is sending his disciples to ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. Sometimes we have to remove ourselves from the kind of the clinical study of God's word and and just kind of put ourselves back into the scripture. Think outside the box of our own culture. What would it have been like then? What, what, why would John ask that question? You know, we read this and we're Christians and we're thinking, well, it's pretty obvious Jesus is the Messiah and I'm sure John knew that. Why would he have to ask that question? Some scholars even dilly-dally around with the thought that, well, uh, John is, is having doubts and things. Uh, you know, they might not be far from the truth there. Perhaps John did have doubts. I mean, think, think about it with me. John has devoted his entire life to being the forerunner of the Messiah. He's lived in the desert since he was old enough to take care of himself. He's been a Nazarite. He's taken vows of poverty, never to cut his hair, never to drink uh, wine or strong drink, uh, to, to live an ascetic life away from everyone in civilized society. And, I mean, that's a big dedication for your whole life. Believing now's the time the Messiah is coming. And now he finds himself in prison. Well, that's pretty challenging, you know. His work, his work's not supposed to be done until the Messiah comes. Excuse me while I take a sip of that delicious Americano. His work's not supposed to be done until the Messiah comes. And he had thought it was probably Jesus, but yet Jesus isn't in the mind of the people fulfilling the role they all thought the Messiah would fulfill. Even John the Baptist. John the Baptist grew up believing, everybody grew up believing that, that uh, and I probably, Sylvia said Jesus there, so I probably misspoke. Thank you. Um, John the Baptist grew up believing that the Messiah would be the deliverer would release them from the bondage of the Romans, that would, would put the Romans to task and put them under their feet, and they would become the greatest, uh, the kingdom that, that God had uh, destined them to be. After all, they were his chosen. And, and no doubt John believed that. He couldn't help but believe that. Everyone believed that. But Jesus continually challenged the contemporary uh, prevailing thought about the Messiah. And so it's natural that John might have some doubts. And knowing that his life is ebbing away, he's imprisoned by the king, and he knows the talk that he's probably going to be uh, killed there. So he is uh, sending two of his most trusted disciples. He said, calling him two of his disciples. I'm sure they're most trusted ones. He's, this is an important mission. I want you to go and find Jesus, and I want you to ask him, are you he who is to come? Meaning, are you the Messiah? Or should we just keep looking? Great question. And as they come to him, uh, they come to talk to him. We need to follow the, the, uh, the way this story develops. It says that they come to him and they told him what John the Baptist said. 
but then in verse 21 it says in that hour so what we have to know is that these uh, these disciples came of John and they're watching Jesus before they can even get close enough to him an hour goes by at least or more where he's doing all of these things and then they can finally get close enough to ask him the question and um, Oh, and Sylvia, note, to strengthen his disciples that they may follow. Yes, uh, to strengthen his disciples that they may follow. And then you noted Jesus. I see what you're saying there. Thank you. That's good. Um, he wanted his disciples to follow Jesus. But I, I do believe it's possible that he maybe had some doubts too. Um, because he's only human. And he's known this is such an important task. But Jesus doesn't just answer them, does he? He doesn't say, of course I am. He doesn't say, yes, I am the Messiah. I am he. He would have been perfectly at right to say that because we know he was. But he doesn't say that. He points them to the work they've seen. Isn't that fascinating? He points them out to the work he's seen. Uh, he doesn't defend his position or his authority. He doesn't try to persuade them. He simply says, Go back and tell them what you've seen. And, and what have they seen? And, and Jesus begins to, to, uh, to, to start telling them, go tell John, you, you've seen the blind receive their sight. You've seen the lame walk. You've seen lepers cleansed. You've seen deaf get their hearing. You've seen the dead raised up. <laughs> and don't forget, the poor have good news preached to them. Because the gospel, the deliverer, the Messiah was to make all things right. And then he adds this, verse 23. Blessed is the one who does not take any offense in me. You know, that's a great point. And, he's, and he's, Jesus is saying to John, when John hears that, John, he's saying, are you going to stumble and fall because I don't look like what you thought I would look like? Or you're going to be blessed if you believe. He's saying all who believe in him, Jesus and Messiah, are blessed. Because he knows the very crowd in front of him. There are a great group gathered there, Pharisees and lawyers, teachers of the law, that actually don't believe in him. Concerning this word, I want to read you some words by Cyril of Alexander. St. Cyril was one of my favorites. You've heard me talk about him a lot. Uh, just a prolific commentator on scripture and, and commentating on he, he brings some great points here Let, let's listen to Cyril of Alexandria he quotes that line and blessed is he who is not offended in me exclamation point and he says the Jews were indeed offended they were indeed offended either as not knowing the depth of the mystery or because they did not seek to know the mystery but every part of the inspired scripture announced beforehand that the word of God, meaning the deliverer, the logos, the, the Messiah, would humble himself to emptiness and be seen on earth. This plainly refers to when he was as we are, meaning when Jesus was human on earth, and would justify by faith everything under heaven. Although scripture prophesied all of this, they stumbled against him, struck against the rock of offense, fell and were ground to powder. Although they plainly saw him clothed with unspeakable dignity and surpassing glory, 
by means of the wondrous deeds he performed. And they threw stones at him and said, quote, Why do you, being a man, make yourself God? End quote. They're, they're quoting, and he, Cyril, is quoting what they said to him in the Pharisees said to Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, when they wanted to stone him for making himself to be God in, in their minds. He said, If, and then he said, in answer to these things, Christ rebuked the immeasurable infirmity of their intellect and said, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. If I do, then though you believe not me, believe my works. Blessed is he who does not stumble against Christ, that is, he who believes in him. So those are the words of St. Cyril of Alexander. And he's basically making the point that the scripture said Everything that Jesus did, it said, it prophesied that, that the Deliverer, the Messiah, would be humble, born in a stable, born of lowly means, a, a man of uh, sorrow and acquainted with grief. You can hear all these words of Isaiah coming back uh, as, as he's talking here. Um, he, he's, he's, the, Cyril is saying, everything that Jesus did and was is what Scripture prophesied as the Messiah. But yet, that's not what everyone was expecting. So we, we have to ask the question, if that's what scripture taught, how do we get to a place when Jesus comes to earth as Messiah that everyone expected something different? I think that's a great question. I think it's a great question for us today because I think too often we presume what we think the kingdom of God should look like on earth today. We presume what we think the church should look like, the kingdom of God should. We presume who should be in it and who shouldn't. We presume a lot of things. One of the things I'm learning in my life as I grow older and try to learn as much as I can is to step back from all my presumptions that were just handed to me because it's the way I grew up. I mean, let's face it. Most of us listening to this, or who will listen to this, grew up in, in an era of the 20th century when the evangelical church reigned in Western American culture and 70% of the people went to church and we all thought and did and, and, and thought everything should be the way it is. And none of that's bad. It's not that we believed bad or wrong things. I, I'm just saying, now we see the church in great decline. We see the world rejecting the message of the gospel in, in rapid fashion. I mean, what's, what is evil is being called good, and what is good is being called evil. It's happening before our very eyes, and we're struggling to understand what, what's going on. What's much like John the Baptist, he's struggling to understand what's going on here. Why This isn't turning out the way we thought it would. But yet Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us if we'll open our eyes open the eyes of my heart lord as we heard christopher singing scripture tells us this is how it's going to go the church is god's instrument but it even prophesies that in the end of days there will be a false church and we're seeing that develop scripture teaches us there will be false prophets antichrists we're seeing all of those things come true in greater measure than ever before. I'm not saying we're about to the end. I'm not saying that at all. Because who knows time? We, we don't know. Only God knows. Only the Father knows. Okay? But definitely, we are seeing 
a, a turn of events that are taking our little culture out of the world. You know, this, this 250 year experiment known as America. So blessed for its history and its time with freedom unequaled um, and being really tested uh, as to how that's going to endure or if it's going to endure. And in that, we begin to question everything. We, the, we're questioning the very pinnings, underpinnings of the foundations of our society. Um, and, and I'm not going to get political with you, but, but there's a whole lot happening here that it is parallel to what is happening to the church. So does that mean that the church is, uh, is ruined, that it's gone, that it's lost its influence in the world or anything? No, not at all. It means we need to wake up like the people did and recognize what the real message of the gospel is and what the real work of the church should be and do it. And stop worrying about building crystal cathedrals. And stop worrying about, do we have the latest and greatest fashion of, of the style of worship or the hippest band or whatever. Stop worrying about all of that. And get back to the gospel, which is about loving the unlovable. There, I said it. We've got to love everyone, even the unlovable. Even the Pharisees of our day. Uh, well, okay, I'm sounding a little preachy, and this is supposed to be Bible study. So hang with me. Forgive me. Let's come back to the scripture. I want to talk about this, what Jesus says in, in the mid-verses here, starting after the messengers are gone. and Jesus begins to talk to him in verse 24. Three times he asked the people, what did you go out to see? When he was going to talk about John the Baptist now. He said, what did you think you were going out to see when you followed him? Um, a reed shaken by the wind? In, in other words, uh, that's an example, a metaphor of somebody who would just sway with popular opinion. Swayed by the wind. Did you think you were going out to see some kingly person? No. You, you don't see kings in the desert, in the wilderness. You see kings in their courts. Is, did, did you just go out to see a, a prophet? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. This time is the third time he asked for a question. Did you go out to see a prophet? And they said, and he said, yes, you did go to see a prophet. I mean, that's what they heard. Oh, the great prophet. John the Baptist is a great prophet. Maybe John the Baptist is even the Messiah. People were thinking that early on. And he says, but I tell you, you went out to see much more than a prophet. Much more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written. And he quotes Isaiah here. He, he quotes some, he, he's paraphrasing Isaiah both chapter 61 and chapter 35, just easy words. Isaiah 61 says, He sent me to bring good news to the humble, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release those in prison. And in, uh, in 35, it says, um, Then shall blind men's eyes be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shout aloud. You know, these are all images. Jesus is paraphrasing the, uh, the prophet Isaiah and, and telling them that's what you went out to see, the fulfillment of all of that. This guy who's the forerunner, who is, who is pointing towards the woman. So John the Baptist has this place in, 
church history, he's, he's in many circles, and he's called John the Forerunner. That was his real role. Not, not just to baptize. He, he used baptism as a, a calling to repentance, a calling uh, to, uh, to, to point towards the washing away of our sins. Not, not that his did that, but he was preparing their hearts. Again, he was forerunning for what was about to happen. He was preparing their hearts. Um, so this idea that John the forerunner, uh, that we know commonly as John the Baptist, his role, Jesus says, is the greatest. He goes on to say, I tell you in verse 28, there is no one born of woman. Okay, now that's every human being ever born. Every human being ever born. There's no one born a woman greater than John the forerunner, John the Baptist. That's a huge statement. I think John deserves a lot of our attention and study. His, his uh, day has been celebrated as a Christian feast day from the earliest days of the Christian faith. And uh, he holds many churches named after him. Uh, a very, very important figure. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, <laughs> I love this. I, I just love this. He says, Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It doesn't say everyone in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. He says, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, so now enters my question. Who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? That's, that was my burning question in our Bible study today. Who is the greatest? Well, it's John. And it's who's ever least in the kingdom. In fact, whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than John. How can that be? Well, let's think of it. Let's put it together here. Any, any thoughts? Guys, jump in at any time with a question or a thought or a comment. I love it when you do that. I've got it here and I'm reading it pretty good today. Um, what do you think Jesus means by he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist? Have some thoughts there. While I take a coffee break, I'm trying to elicit some some dialogue here. I just miss the days when we had open dialogue. You know, I just really love that. Um, but uh, throw it, throw in a thought. What do you think Jesus meant by saying that whoever's least in the kingdom of God is actually greater than John the Baptist? I don't know about you. I don't feel greater than John the Baptist at all. Quite frankly, I don't feel greater than anyone at all, except, except, except for maybe in the things I do wrong. Um, but I think that that's what Jesus is reaching for here. That's what, that's what he's trying to say. What he, what he really think he's trying to say here is you, there's, there's two dispensations. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. There's the time before the Messiah and there's the time after the Messiah. And up until Messiah, up until Jesus, John is the greatest. But now a greater, a greater time has come. Because now the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus always preached. Now the kingdom of God is at hand. And whoever is least in the kingdom, Jesus taught, the last shall be first. Part of the gospel teaching of Jesus Christ is that we 
who believe in him should consider ourselves less than everyone else. That's a difficult thing to do. It's something we must remind ourselves over and over and over. Because in our humanity, in our flesh, in our unsanctified human flesh, we promote ourselves. We do it without thinking. Uh, It's second nature to us to just want to promote ourselves, to get ahead, to do. um, I I know I've had to fight that all my life. I I just have. Um, On one hand, I I just be vulnerable here. You know, I just, I've always struggled with that, that very thought. At the very least, a lesson for humility. Yes, Sylvia, it is a lesson for humility. This is a huge lesson for humility. Um, I've struggled with that. Um, Wanting to be noticed, wanting to be important, wanting to be the man. I mean, I'm just admitting it to you here. But but that's my humanness. And and now the the beauty of getting older is you look back over your life and you begin to realize, wow, What was I? What was I thinking? I'm I'm not even close to being the man or the best at anything. I'm, you know, if we're aging properly, we're growing in humility. I I think I can safely say that, Um, and and I'm certainly trying to. And realize, and, and it's when we realize that, when we realize that we're nothing in the kingdom of God, it's then that we're everything in the kingdom of God. Okay, when we realize our place as last, we're first. We're, we're, we're God's child. Now, Jesus is going to use a, I got to get going here because it's 1137 and I got a lot to get through here. So let me jump back at my notes here. Jesus begins, he, he is truly saying that there's a huge divide in history. Okay, so much so that, you know, and we, we, we see that in Jesus. You know, we see that, don't we? There's B.C., before Christ. All time is marked either before Christ or after Christ. A.D., which is from the Latin, Anno Domino, the year of our Lord. So from the year our Lord came to the earth and after is time. And then Now, of course, scholars, knowing best, have changed it from B.C. and A.D. If you're going to be scholarly, you need to talk B.C.E. and C.E. Before the Common Era common era. <laughs> they don't realize what they did. They just do not realize. I don't have a problem at all saying BCE and, and CE. You know why? Because to me, it just simply means before the Christian era and the Christian era. No problem. Uh, so I can use those terms and get along with everybody on the, that, that level. Um, but, but it is, it's something that, that now is the time, now is the day. And so who are we in the kingdom? He begins to, to point out to them, he tells this little story. Um, he, he says, uh, let me find the verse here for you. To what? Verse 31. So to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus is comparing. What, what am I going to compare this generation to? This people who have, the, the, the dawning has dawned, the light has dawned upon them. People from a land of darkness. The light is dawned upon. He says, you know what I think I can compare to? Here's a, he says, I have a good comparison. Jesus says, you're like children sitting in a marketplace playing a game. That's what children do. I mean, especially in those days. You know, today they sit around and look on their phones and play games. But then they had to play amongst themselves. 
And they would commonly do that wherever children gathered, wherever adults gathered and their kids were around them. I mean, I'm thinking back to my childhood. This is it. You know, they had to go to a potluck dinner or whatever at the church or wherever. You know, the adults had their thing and the kids, we just kind of gathered together and did our thing. There was no video to watch. There was no game to play on a, on a telephone or anything like that. We just, we made up our own fun. And, uh, and, and then he says, here's the game they play. And he says, they sit around calling out to each other. We piped to you and you did not dance. Uh, we wailed and you did not weep. Now, this is a reference that if we understand the culture, is, is kids playing games like wedding and funeral. Big public events were weddings and funerals. And at the weddings, there was gaiety and there was piping with pipe. Pipers were very common. That was part of it. And at funerals, there was lots of public wailing and mourning. And so they're sitting there in the marketplace playing their game. And like all kids do, not all of them want to play along because it wasn't their idea. Isn't that the way it is? We've all experienced that when we were kids probably. You, you, well, there's always the leader of the band who said, you do this and you do that, and somebody else that's going to rebel and say, I don't want to do that. What? That's what he's saying. You're like that. You're like these kids playing this game, trying to tell everybody what to do, and then criticizing everybody when they don't do what you want them to do. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. That's exactly what the people who would not humble themselves did. They thought they knew what was going on, what was right, and who was who, and they're telling everybody about it. That's, that's the role of the Pharisees and the scribes and all those who rejected Jesus. And so he goes on and he says, For John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. I mean, they looked at John the Baptist's life, and they, they said, This guy's crazy. He's evil. He, he didn't get drunk. He didn't, uh, was not a glutton, didn't do anything like that. And they called him evil, called him bad, called him sinful. Jesus, Jesus comes and he, he says, the son of man comes eating and drinking. Now there's a comparison here. The eating and drinking is, is what the Pharisees were doing. This is the party generation. This is the people that were part of society. John wouldn't blend into your society. He wouldn't eat with you. He wouldn't drink with you. And you call him evil. Jesus comes along. Jesus is willing to eat and drink with anyone. He, he, he's eating and drinking with sinners. And what do you do? You call him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. But, Jesus' closing words, but he says, wisdom is justified by all her children. I, I love that phrase. Wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, wisdom is always recognized by those who are truly wise. For truly wise, we recognize. This is what he's saying to the followers. If you're really wise, you can see the truth here. I've raised the dead. Of, you know, all this has been done. Go, just go tell them what you know. It's the wisdom that's apparent to you. And, and wisdom is... I saw this this uh, reference in some of my studies to the Book of Wisdom. So I wanted to read it for you. The Book of Wisdom, some of you that escapes because it is not in your Bible, okay? It is in the old Greek Septuagint though. So it is in some Bibles or what Protestants commonly call the apocryphal books. Uh, the Book of Wisdom, one of my favorite books and it's missed by so many people. 
it, it just has so much in it. But listen to Wisdom chapter 5. Listen to what it says. Then the just man shall take his stand, full of assurance, to confront those who oppressed him and made light of all his sufferings. And at the sight of him there will be terror and confusion, and they will be beside themselves to see him so unexpectedly safe home. This is a prophecy, if you will, about the just man, meaning the Christ figure, the Messiah figure, who everybody thinks is nuts, but ends up, in the end, they're going to see him safe at home. Filled with remorse, groaning and grasping for breath, they will all say among themselves, Was not this the man who was once our butt, a target for our contempt? Fools that we were, we held his way of life to be madness and his end dishonorable. To think that he is now counted one of the sons of God and assigned a place of his own among God's people. And that can be ascribed to John the Baptist, who they thought was crazy and mad. In the end, it becomes the saint. It can be ascribed to Christ himself. It can be ascribed to all those who follow the way of Christ, the way of holiness, and yet the world laughs at us. We're the butt of their jokes. They hold us in contempt. But in the end, we end up justified. Beautiful words from the Book of Wisdom. Um, totally not on topic, but I love this because it's on the very same page, so I'm going to tell you. The Book of Wisdom, one of my favorite verses to share with people who've lost loved ones in a funeral setting, in, in, a, uh, in, in, in just talking with them. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 15. But the just live forever. Their reward is the Lord's keeping, and the Most High has them in his care. Therefore, royal splendor shall be theirs, and a fair diadem from the Lord himself. He will protect them with his right hand and shield them with his arm. Beautiful, isn't it? From the Book of Wisdom. Beautiful words about those, the just who've gone on uh, in faith, who've died. And there's even more from Wisdom. Wisdom chapter 3 has some beautiful words about the just and who people have died uh, for those that are mourning. But anyway, I told you that was totally off topic, but I um, wanted to throw it in there because I, I saw it on the same page. So, let, what can we say about today's lesson? Jesus says his place as Messiah is obvious. It should be obvious to the world. Question is, what did we go out to see? What are we looking for? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a Savior who's going to deliver you from the poverty of this world, put you into the wealth, deliver you from every disease, and make everything smooth for you? A prosperity gospel. And then when things don't go that way, you lose your faith. Or are you looking for a Savior who says everything here is passing away, but I'm going to give you what really matters, and that's eternal life. And I'm going to give you the power of my indwelling Holy Spirit so that you can overcome and not lose joy and not lose victory, even through all the trials and tribulations of this world. Even though the whole world rejects you and makes fun of you. That 
is who we want to be. That's who we want to be. So uh, there's a little story told. I want to end with this because then I have to get to work again at a certain time. But uh, there, there's, a, there's an old poem. I'm not going to recite the whole thing for you because, number one, I don't know it to recite it, and it's really long. Um, but it was written in 1856, I think, by John Greenleaf Whittier. Look it up, John Greenleaf Whittier. The poem is titled Maud Muller. It's a woman's name, Maud Muller. It's a story of a lady named Maud who's out raking up hay under the tree, under the apple tree, and raking up her hay. She's a farm woman, grew up on the farm, and, and, and she's out in the countryside. And the story is of a judge, a rich man, who's, who's, who comes riding on his horse down the lane, and she looks at him, and he looks at her, and there's obvious attraction. And, and they, in their mind, you know, he asks her for a drink, she gives him a drink. And it's really a great poem, okay? Got to look it up and read it. But here's the story. The, the moral of the story is, 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 is the, the guy's too timid to just throw cares to the wind and love her for who she is and just really stop and get to know her and everything. And, and he doesn't speak his feelings. And she's too shy to, to tell him what she's thinking. And, and they pass. He goes on and she goes on. And then the poem goes on to tell about their lives. And he goes on to marry a woman who all she wants is power. She goes on to marry a guy who's more of her station. And, 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 and it, it's really about sadness in, in a way. And it teaches a great point about our lives. And, and it's, here's, here's what it all comes to. I think this is a summation of it all. And it's a line from the poem that says, nearing the end of the poem, it says, For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. Quote, it might have been. End quote. That's a poem, Maud Muller. Of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest is these. It might have been. That's what Jesus was saying. Don't, don't be sad. Don't, don't come to the end of your life and, oh, what would it have been like if? Don't look back. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to have to look back on your life and say, if only. Now is the day of salvation. Don't wish for what others have. Don't wish for a different station in life. Be who God made you to be. The redeemed child of God. Who knows best what role your life should be. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a senator or a president. And I probably wanted him for all the wrong reasons. Got into politics, ran for office. You know the story, some of you. Probably wanted it for all the wrong reasons, I'm sure. God knew what best what station my life should be and what I should be and how I should be. And he knows for you too. Because as my old pastor said, God is too good to do wrong and too wise to make a mistake. And this is all about wisdom here. So are we going to have the wisdom of the people that saw Jesus and believed and accepted? Are we going to have the the wisdom of the world that is folly. They said in the book of wisdom, they said, fools are we. They're saying that after the judgment, after the end of time, when they look back and see how foolish they were. Fools are we, for we said this guy was mad. Um, Sylvia asks, author's name again, please. Yes. John Greenleaf 
Whittier, W-H-I-T-T-I-E-R, John Greenleaf Whittier, lived in the 1800s, lived and died in the 1800s, great poet. Uh, love the poem, would have loved to share it all with you, and, and, but uh, over a cup of coffee maybe someday. We'll have a poet's, a dead poet's society to sit around and read and drink coffee. But thank you for joining me today. I want to encourage you, wherever you're at in your lot of life, God is with you. God loves you, and Christ has a plan for you. And that plan includes eternal life. Not necessarily riches and glory in this world. Don't seek after those things that fade. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then all the things you need will be given to you. So, good words. Uh, I pray they're good words in your heart today because they're from the Lord, not from me. God forgive me for any thinking that my, my words are, are what you needed to hear. Uh, thank you for joining me. Can we pray today as we close? Let's just offer our hearts and prayers to the Lord. Great to be with you again. Thank you for joining me today. Looking forward to more time together. Let us pray. Father God, I ask your blessing now upon those that are listening and upon those that will ever listen. Cover over anything I've said that is wrong or arrogant or, or misplaced. And may your Holy Spirit guide those who hear to the truth of your word, your life, and your spirit. I ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto ages of ages. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. I will see you hopefully next week.